This episode of Stuff You Should Know is sponsored by Squarespace. Whether you need a landing page, a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, it's all possible with the Squarespace website. Go to squarespace.com and set your website apart. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and Jerry's over there, and there's some coffee. I see a few posters. Uh, there's a uh, Beasley brand storage thing. <laughs> you getting you getting some of that Beasley cash coming your way? Maybe. What was that all about? I hope it's Beasley. It could also be Beasley. I don't know. You know, I got a listener mail from someone who went to get a bonsai tree in Boston after uh, they were inspired after our episode and the dude she's like have you been busy and the guy was like this week we've been like people want bonsai trees the phone's been off the hook (laughs) no way yeah we could be getting some of that bonsai scratch we definitely should be we're getting nothing Japan should be giving us money man what's their monetary unit the yen is it still the yen the Japanese yen We, we need many yen coming our way yeah soon Many yen. And they're going to try to flash some numbers at you. And you'll be like, wow, that's a lot. Yeah, it's just not. remember, it's about 100 <laughs> yen to $1. I'll just, I'll let or you do 10. That. I'll let you negotiate that one. I think it's 10 now. Yeah. I don't remember. Uh, and the other night, I turned on the television and Karate Kid was on. Oh, I saw that. Just moments before the wonderful bonsai scene. Yeah, I saw it. You took a picture of your television. Yeah, and I put it on Instagram. I saw our Instagram, SYSK Podcast. Yeah, we're, we're trying to take more pictures. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that what you do? Share ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, but this isn't about bonsai. No, I've got one more shout out though. Um, there's a dude named Aaron Seitz who, remember when we had our horror fiction contest years back? Sure. And we said that anybody who, uh, was a part of it, mm-hmm. if they ever published anything, we give them a shout out. In perpetuity. In perpetuity. And Aaron Seitz, uh, published something. He published a short story collection called The Andrew Jackson Stories. Ooh. Um, and he says that it was published by Lockjaw Magazine, and he said they're about Andrew Jackson about as much as Richard brought against trout fishing in America is about trout fishing. That means nothing to me. Well, it, it wasn't really about trout fishing. I, 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 um, but the, uh, the it's a slim little book. He sent it to us. I haven't read it yet, but he swears up and down that it's awesome. So we're going to go ahead and take his word for it. Right. But congratulations, Aaron Seitz. And if you want to go get your hands on Andrew Jackson's stories, go look it up. Go to the Lockjaw Magazine site, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So that's done. <laughs> and now we can talk about Controlled Burns. Yes. Good band name. Controlled Burn? Yeah. Depending on, like, maybe if it was like a soft rock group. Yeah, yeah. They're like a, a 80s wedding band, Controlled Burn. Oh, sure. Good evening. We are Controlled Burn, and this is by ELO. Right. Or um, Loggins and Messina. Mm, yeah. I'm not dissing ELO, by the way. I love No, ELO, ELO okay. is great. Did you see uh, Kenny Loggins on um, Documentary Now? The uh, two-parter? Yeah. Which episode was that? It was the two-part one about the, um, what were the, what, what did, uh, what was their thing? I don't remember. Oh, they were a band. They were, um. Oh, that's right. That was the band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like the greatest band name ever. It was good. I want to say California Chrome, but that was that racehorse. <laughs> I, I don't remember what they were called. Was it Controlled Burn? No, but that that was a good one. Yeah. That two-parter. Great show. Love that show. Uh, 
It's and there's a new season coming out, right? Uh, they should. Okay. So, um, again, we're talking about control burning, <laughs> not a ban, an actual thing. Yeah, and this ties into our uh, wildfires episode. Yeah, which we did. Mm-hmm. Um, years back. Yeah. Um, but Chuck, I, I always love the opportunity to talk about 1491. Oh, here we go. And here's one now. All right. So, um. It wasn't until about... 1491, the book, by the way. Right. If you're new to the show, oh, this yeah. is Josh's long-stated uh, favorite book. So long. And uh, you've talked about it a lot. At least 50, 60 times. Yeah. And I would have read it by now if you hadn't have talked about it so much. You don't even need to now. You know the whole <laughs> book. So 1491, one of the premises of it is that they're, like our understanding of um, Native America mm-hmm. in North and Meso and South America prior to Columbus coming over is like just totally wrong. Yeah. There were way more people. They were way more advanced than um, anthropology and archaeology has long given them credit for. Yeah. They had and internet cafes. Pretty much. Mm-hmm. They did. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't until like the early 2000s that this idea of the noble savage who treaded lightly on the on the ecosystem, on the environment, yeah. started to crumble, right? And... um we started to realize that a lot of the features, what what the early explorers thought were natural features of North and South and Mesoamerica, were um, actually really well-managed ecosystems, mm-hmm. right? Um, and one of the ways that Native Americans used or managed ecosystems was through fire. Yeah. But again, there was this idea that Native Americans just had no idea what they were doing with anything. So whenever archaeologists up until about 2000, 2001 or two, the late 90s maybe, anytime they came across evidence of like a, a fire mm-hmm. and it seemed like the Native Americans had set it, they just assumed that either the Native Americans had set it to amuse themselves. Yeah, because they're big dummies. Or because a campfire got out of control. Because they're big dummies. Right. Boy, oh boy. But this is what they came up with. They're like, oh, well, they, they clearly just wanted to set some fires for yeah, fun. Right. They, they couldn't have possibly had any, any, um, point to it. Sure. But then more and more investigation has shown like, no, actually, not only did they know what they were doing, like, if you step back and look at North America, yeah. the whole continent was a managed set of ecosystems. Yeah. And one of the ways they did it was through fire. The other thing that interested me too was depending on the the explorers and the Europeans and the settlers that came over to to North America, um some of them came and that was not anything new to them. Yeah. It turns out that using fire to manage ecosystems is almost universal. Oh yeah. Basically. Yeah, and I mean some of the reasons they might have done it uh of course these days one of the main reasons we do it is to prevent forest fires from spreading, right? Uh, which we'll get to. But back then, uh, they would use it to improve uh, the foraging conditions for free-ranging cattle, yeah. uh, increase visibility, mm-hmm. uh, access. There were all kinds of great reasons to burn things in a controlled way. Yeah, supposedly the early explorers didn't really think about it, but the historians went back and looked at it. The the explorers who used to say, like, you can't, you can't get through the forests in North America, we're talking about swampland, like lands that wouldn't burn. Yeah. But you could drive, like, a car through a forest in, like, uh, Ohio or something like that. Yeah. Although there's swamps in Ohio, a non-swampy part of Ohio, because of the use of fire. Are there swamps in Ohio? Yeah, there were. Wow. They filled them in and built Toledo over it. <laughs> 
So uh, you were talking about the um, when Europeans came upon the scene. Um, it's really interesting. I read this article called uh, The Historical Foundations of Prescribed Burning for Wildlife, colon, A Southeastern Perspective. Beautiful. By A. Sidney Johnson and Philip E. Hale. And it was, uh, I think it was an academic paper or something, but it started to dawn on me when they were talking about the founding of America, why we ended up like we ended up. Um, it just, just kind of all came together uh, for me. I love reading stuff like that. It yeah. like, connects dots that weren't connected before. And this was a simple dot I should have connected before. But basically, in the northeast of the United States, it was largely settled by people from the southern lowlands of England. Uh-huh. People that lived in cities and people that had not, for the most part, lived on farms right. and didn't have a lot of experience with agriculture and certainly not with prescribed burning, which is another name for a controlled burn. Right. Uh, and then in the south, uh, particularly the southeast, uh, we were more populated by people from rural areas of uh, the UK and Scotland and Ireland and western England. Mm-hmm. They had a lot of experience with farming. Right. And then I started to think, oh, wait a minute. That all just makes total sense. That's why the Northeast became industrialized. Right. That's why the South were a bunch of yokels. They were agrarian. <laughs> and uh, it just sort of, it was a very obvious thing, but it just sort of like coalesced in my mind. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. Way. I, I knew that part already, the industrialization aspects of yeah. it. But th- one of the things that coalesced for me was uh, uh, wondering how much of the Civil War was driven by... Sure by uh, rivalries that yeah. go back to England and Scotland and oh, Ireland sure. rather than, you know, the just the context of, of North America and the U.S. Absolutely, because I, I think for the most part, once people came over here, mm-hmm. they did things like they did them over right. there, Yeah, which but, makes sense. Like uh, Scarlett O'Hara's father had that Irish brogue, remember? No. Yeah, her dad, he did had... He have- I'm pretty sure he did, unless really? I'm losing my mind right well, now. Well, it's been a while since I've seen that movie. Huh. I'm pretty sure. I believe it. Okay. But it makes sense. And like you said, maybe the attitudes came along with that. Yeah. Maybe that carried over into uh, how people felt about each other pre-Civil War. Yeah. I'll Man. bet it did. But the, the, the point of all this is that up north, there was fire suppression. That was the key driver, right? Like they would, they would try to keep fires from breaking out under any circumstances. Yeah, and don't c- get confused because a suppressing fire, right, is a controlled burn. Fire right. suppression is putting out fires. Yeah. So maybe we should just say up north, they didn't think that starting fires on purpose was smart. Yeah, they and were like south, no fires. <laughs> and down south, they said no, no, no. This is we've been doing it in England for years. They were like fire, fire. Yeah, fire is a good way to manage things. Yeah. And that's how the the nation was divided, at least at first. And then the Civil War happened. And interestingly, um, the Yankees came down and said, hey, this old plantation um, will make a really great hunting preserve. Yeah. And I'm going to buy it. Yeah. And now that I own this enormous tract of land in the South, I'm a Yankee. And we don't believe in fire. So I'm going to make sure no fire ever breaks out here, even though everybody's been using um, fire techniques uh for generations yeah and interestingly too the fire techniques that the uh founders in the south used were the same kind that the native americans in that area used right so like they were on the same page thousands of miles apart yeah and basically came and kind of started doing the same thing or kept doing the same thing that native americans were doing and what makes that even more interesting is that 
um, it's using fire is not universal to ecosystems. Right. Like you, there's different techniques or not using it at all, depending on the type of ecosystem you're dealing with. Well, yeah, because in the, uh, in the, uh, southern lowlands, apparently the forests were like fire sensitive hardwoods and spruce trees. So mm-hmm. it sort of depended on what kind of forest you had. Right. I guess theirs weren't as flammable. Right. Or inflammable, which is a word I think we should just get rid of entirely. Inflammable? Yeah. It means the same thing as flammable, but it sounds like it means the opposite. It's just a stupid word. Really? Yeah. Inflammable. I've never heard of it. Well, that's great. That's all the more reason to get rid of it. That's crazy. Inflammable means means flammable. What's the point? Man, what a dumb language. So, um, the, the, the point of the whole thing is that fire is a natural feature of a living, thriving ecosystem. Yes. It's, it's something humans are terrified of, but on the, on the environmental level, on the ecological level, it's a necessary component to keep any or most ecosystems healthy, right? Yes. And some groups of people understood this. The people who ended up running the show after the Civil War did not believe this. And it actually has had a very large impact throughout the 20th century in the United States, which we're just now overcoming. Oh, yeah. We can actually thank one guy for changing the attitude toward fires and using them for um, wildfire management. And we'll talk about him right after this. All right, so you teased the name drop. I did. Right before the break. Uh, in 1923, well, there was, there was this one particular northern landowner that came down south and bought up a bunch of plantations. His name was Henry Bedell, and he hated fire. Uh, <laughs> fire had burned his favorite horse. <laughs> Maybe. You never know. Um, so he hated fire. He was appalled at the idea of burning land. and uh, But other people, you know, like we were saying in the south, said, no, it's a good thing. So in 1923... Uh, they commissioned the U.S. Bureau of Biological Survey, which was precursor to the Fish and Wildlife Service. And uh, it was headed up at the time by a guy named Herbert L. Stoddard, who was the name that you teased. Right. And Stoddard, actually, the thing that kicked it off the most was that these guys who um, who bought these huge plantations and turned them into preserves, they like to hunt quail. Yeah. And um, they Bob noticed. White quail. Right. And they noticed that the bobwhite quail population was declining every year and they had no idea why. So they brought Stoddard in and Stoddard became a bobwhite quail expert. Well, he already was. Oh, he was already. That's why they brought him in. Yeah. He, okay. he was the he wrote a book about it. And um, this guy was awesome. He, he helped found the literally helped found a profession of wildlife management. Right. The whole field is like basically this guy. Yep. He wrote like some legendary books that are still used today. Uh, he was like literally the first critic of industrialized agriculture. He's just this sort of champion. And a Georgian, a, a transplant to Georgia. Yeah. Yeah. I think he, I think he's from Chicago, but did a lot of work here for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So he, um, he starts looking into the quail situation down here and he's like, well, you need to burn them. There's your problem. 
You guys have a woody undergrowth problem. And I looked into this and bobwhite quail require some of the most complex habitats you've ever heard of, right? Yeah. So they thrive in areas where you've got uh, what's called woody cover, which are dense shrubbery that's like mostly woody Mm -hmm. that they can use as what's called um, covey headquarters. Yeah. It's like little escape patches and they need them all over the place but in addition to this they also need food sources so they need like crops of a certain variety and then they also need some grassy areas and they need all this stuff in certain proportions and if you have the proportions right which apparently they did the the quail populations thrive but if you have too much of one thing then the quail populations diminish and that one thing that had that had grown up was the woody undergrowth. And the reason the woody undergrowth was allowed to grow up was because the Yankees came in and stopped using fire. That's right. Isn't that interesting? I think so. It was all because these rich guys, um, these rich industrialists who wanted to hunt quail were like, where's all the quail? Right. And, uh, they hired the government to come look into it. And this government guy came in and was like, oh, here's the problem. You guys need to set this on fire. But the thing is, is no one listened to him. Well, no, he had he had a few people that, um, I mean, they hired him for his expertise, so he had a few people that got on board, but he fought for many, many years, um, like the history of controlled burning. It wasn't until post-World War II is when it started to catch on a little bit, uh-huh. and then in the 50s and 60s, it became more commonplace, but it wasn't until 1971 that the U.S. Forest Service had their very first symposium on... Uh, on prescribed burns, and that's what really turned the tide. But this was the 1920s, and it took all the way till the 1970s for it to become like completely accepted yeah. as the right way to do things. Yeah, and in the meantime, we had a lot of unnecessary wildfires. Well, and one of the reasons, too, was apparently all the forestry um, workers in the South were from the North, uh, and so they had these bad experiences in England and elsewhere mm-hmm. with like devastating fires that killed people and wiped out villages. Right. And uh, apparently they also had this German influence, uh, like a protectionist influence from Germans in forestry school that was taught to them that way. Gotcha. So they were they were doing it all wrong. Well, one of the other explanations I saw for why the Forestry Service was like, no, you can't burn down here, is because um, one, I guess one of the spoils of winning the Civil War was the the North came down and just clear-cut the south of its pine, and they figured, well, the pine forests have been so devastated. For what? For timber? Uh-huh. Yeah. That we can't let any fire happen or else no, no, this pine's never going to recover, so we really can't do any burning now. Man. Yeah. So eventually everybody started listening to Stoddard, and um, now we use fire um, pretty much everywhere in the United States. And there's a couple of reasons to set fires on purpose. And the coolest one is that if you set fires on purpose, you actually prevent wildfires down the down the line. Yeah, and and you know we're not talking about like completely burning down every tree in the forest. Well, they're, yeah, they're mainly burning uh, that that the, you know the stuff that will catch everything on fire, like right. the the understory, the underbrush, the mm-hmm. dead leaves, dead branches, stuff on the ground. Right, and if you if you burn that on purpose. You burn out the fuel for, uh, again, a future out-of-control wildfire. Yeah. One of the other things you do is you open up the um, canopy, right? Yeah. So you're burning out some trees, but for the most part, uh, the older, more established trees can survive. 
And since that canopy's opened up, more sunlight can come through. And when more sunlight can come through, you have uh, smaller trees that can start to grow. So there's more reproduction, actually. Yeah, and, and if you're listening thinking, well, this all sounds great, but uh, doesn't that release a ton of carbon emissions in the air when you're burning things? Mm-hmm. And if you're burning thousands and tens of thousands of acres a year on purpose, aren't you just adding to the problem? No. I was being coy. Yeah. But the answer is no. Well, it depends. Well, so, it's, it's a little bit of both. I thought this was a little strange for the, the way that this was parceled out. So on the one hand, in this article, it says, nope, actually, they've done studies, and the the large established trees that can survive a controlled burn mm-hmm. actually lock in more carbon yeah. um, in the long run than... Uh, so the the controlled burn releases less than say a wildfire that's burning out of control. Yeah, that burns those trees and unlocks that carbon, right? Yeah. And then later on in the last like section of this article, the author's like, yeah, that really just depends on what kind of forest you're talking about. In some forests, it doesn't make a difference at all. And and yes, then in that case, it's bad for the for the environment. Mm, I don't know about that last part. That's, I'm just saying. I just think it was weird. Well, I, I think it's cool, though, like what you just said, though, the, the the large trees capture that carbon. Right. And if you burn off the small stuff underneath, what you said earlier, it's going to open up that canopy and let those big trees grow bigger. Yeah. And uh, that's going to, you know, that's going to be good in the long run. Short, long-term gain for short-term uh, carbon emission output. Right. So, and then also, in addition to opening up that canopy, allowing more sunlight so reproduction can happen, there's actually, they found um, some species of trees that depend on fire to reproduce. And chief among them is the giant sequoia. So Beautiful trees. In Yosemite, in I think the 60s, yeah, the 60s, um, they were like, the sequoias aren't reproducing. What's going on? And somebody, a guy named um, Dr. Richard Hartsvelt said, I think it has to do with fire. We stopped doing fire, and we want to do fire, <laughs> so let's do some fire. And they're like, shut up, Hertzfeldt. You can't even talk right. Yeah. And he's like, I'm going to go burn some stuff and prove you guys wrong. So he started doing some tests. He he did he do fire tests, and um, he found that when fire was applied to a sequoia forest, the sequoia cones opened up and their seeds could germinate. Yeah, and the big daddies uh, are very fire resistant. Yeah. So they were like, I'm a little hot underneath in the undercarriage. But it feels nice. But it feels pretty good. And I'm going to stand strong. But uh, what I'm going to do, like you said, is I'm going to open my cones. Uh, and the other thing it does is, you know, when you drop seeds, if you have a woody understory, and understory is another word for that underbrush. Right. Under, what'd you call it? Uh, under cover, under coverage, woody cover for a bobwhite coil. That's what the bobwhite coils call it amongst themselves. All right. So imagine a, a seed dropping from a pine cone from a uh-huh. hundred feet up right? and the ground is covered in leaves and sticks and things. That seed might fall on a pile of leaves six inches deep mm-hmm. and just sit there. Just sit there and be like, I'm unfulfilled. AKA it never makes contact with the soil where it needs to be. To establish roots. Right. Or even if it did, uh, the sunlight is being blocked out by that understory. And fire solves all those problems. It does, because fire pops that pine cone open, the seeds come out. Yep. 
Uh, they are in the newly burned ground, which has a lot of uh, carbon fertilizer now in the form of ashes. Sure. And um, lots of sunlight coming through because the understory has been burned away. So fire is the greatest thing ever. Pretty amazing. Um, but, again, we said before, uh, it depends on the ecosystem, right? So especially out in California, they got kind of burn happy. They're like, oh, wait, fire can actually suppress wildfires? We have tons of wildfires out here. We need to burn all the time. And they started burning and burning and burning in Southern California, and it had zero impact on um, diminishing wildfires. And they couldn't figure out why. And they finally said, well, maybe we should study the ecosystem we're setting on fire yeah. and see what's what. And they found that they really shouldn't be burning the the Southern California ecosystem to prevent wildfires. So that actually makes it worse in this case. Yeah, in Southern California, they have what's called chaparral. And it's the, uh, I mean, if you've ever been to Southern California, you know that um, it looks lovely now in the neighborhoods because people planted stuff everywhere. Mm-hmm. But the, the hillsides are kind of gross. They're brown and they're thorny and they're shrubby. It's like uh, all tumbleweeds. Yeah, it's just, it's not, uh, it's just sort of gross in those canyons. Right. And that's just my opinion. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's chaparral, right? Yeah. Okay. And uh, that chaparral, uh, well, if you leave everything to itself there, apparently it's super fire resistant. Right. So every, like, if you left it naturally, it would only catch flame every hundred years or so. Right. But they were setting fire to this every few years. Um, in order to try to prevent wildfires. And what they were ultimately doing was burning the chaparral, which was naturally flame-resistant, right? Yeah. And in favor of the chaparral, what was, since it took a long time to grow back, the the stuff that was beating the chaparral out that could grow faster was actually very flammable. Yeah. So they were promoting the growth of wildfire fuel in Southern California by burning these the chaparral too much. Good stuff. It is. It's really interesting. All right. Well, let's take a break and we'll come back and talk about a uh, little bit about climate change and how that factors in and then how you can do your own controlled burn. <laughs> Stuff you should All right, by the way, I was kidding. No one should try this ever, ever, ever. We should have probably not broken for a minute or so before you said that. I don't think anyone just paused and said, oh, my gosh, I'm going to run out because we didn't teach them yet. Oh, that's a good point. You should never start a fire. Yeah, don't start fires. Okay. Got that out of the way. Uh, climate change is having a, an impact on these wildfires. Um, from between 1979, there's a season, a fire, wildfire season. Yeah. We talked about it in our episode when it's just more likely to happen. And between 1979 and 2013, the global fire season increased by almost 19%. Yeah. Which means like the fire season grew longer around the world. Yeah. By that much. Which is bad. And, uh, at the rate of 864 million acres worldwide, of wildfire that burn every year, which is an amazing number. Um, apparently that emits more than half the amount of carbon that fossil fuels put out in the atmosphere. Yeah, so, so it's awful. That's a tremendous amount, right? Yeah, and it's a feedback loop. It is because um, it the it, it contributes CO2 to the atmosphere, which promotes the greenhouse effect, right? The greenhouse effect 
creates drought conditions. It heats things up. It lowers humidity. Um, and it becomes a vicious cycle, right? Because when you have drought conditions, you have more dead trees that provide more fuel for more wildfires and more wildfires put more CO2 into the air, which promotes the greenhouse effect. And it just yeah. gets worse and worse and worse. More wind too. Yeah. It's a big problem. Yeah. I was reading about the Fort McMurray wildfire, um, up in Canada. And apparently they just had some freak weather. The Fred McMurray wildfire? Yeah. Yeah. He was like, uh, I got no Fred McMurray jokes. <laughs> um, he, uh, well, not he, the, the city, Fort yeah. McMurray, like a little outside town, they they think the, the fire started somewhere out there. They're not sure what did it yet, but they had some freak weather where it was like 91 degrees. They still have like frozen lakes up there right now, but the temperature was like 91 degrees. Wow. Humidity was at like 15% and winds were at about 45 miles an hour. So it was just ripe for a wildfire. And now it's up to like f- about 450,000 hectares. Wow. Which is, uh, exactly a ton of acres, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Man. All right. So how do you start a controlled burn? How do you do this? Uh, carefully. Well, first of all, you want to work for the Forest Service or yeah. Fish and Game or... Yeah, the the author of this article says, go to local authorities. I'm like, you can do this if you're not a local authority, yeah. but I guess you could. Like, He, he also mentions the a landowner in the uh, Pine Barrens of New Jersey. Yeah, that does his own controlled burns. Right. Surely you have to get... You got permitted and if you're doing it yourself. Right. Well, yeah, he's saying go to local authorities, but I was surprised that... Yeah. You you can do it if you're not a local authority. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Right. In fact, I'm still not quite convinced. At the very least, you want to collaborate closely with local authorities if you're not one. That's right. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, the, I mean, this beginning stuff is, you know, get your permits, find out what the best time of year and all that stuff. What you need to do is just leave it to the people who do it yeah. best. Right. But this is what they're going to do. Um. But the the first thing that you want to do after you've gotten all your equipment and all that good stuff mm-hmm. is look at the weather and pick out a good time to do it. Yeah, you want it kind of damp. Sure. Uh, you want the humidity above 25%. Ideally. Low winds. Yeah. Basically everything the opposite of the weather like it was in Fort McMurray on May 1st. Yeah, less uh, than 80 degrees, mm-hmm. uh, ideally. Um, and then once you've got everything all set up and you've got a great day picked out, um, you're going to start a tiny little test fire in a corner. Well, first, you want to wake up and have a complete breakfast. <laughs> then you can go start your test fire. Um, test fire, basically, you just look at it and say, how are you going to behave today? Yeah. Um, well, even before you set the test fire, you've got, you want to s- plan out your area that you want to burn. And in the area, you want to identify natural fire breaks. These are things like roads, bodies of water, that kind of stuff, things that the fire's not going to spread across, right? Ideally, yeah. And, and then you want to create even more fire breaks around it where there aren't natural ones. You want to plow and dig and cut and um, basically create an area to where the fire can't spread outside of the, the place you want to contain it into. I wonder if dropping an atom bomb on a wildfire would work. Operation Plowshare, sure. I don't know. I don't think so. Probably not. I think that would make everything a lot worse. So once you've got all your fire breaks, uh, both natural and the ones you've just made yourself with your hands, you want to start your first fire called the backfire. Yeah. And the backfire is uh, downwind. Yeah. Uh, it's against that fire break, so you know it's only going to be going in one direction. 
Um, it's against the wind, so it's not going to be super fast. Right. And you're going to be able to control it. Like, you're kind of starting off nice and easy. Yeah, just don't kill yourself out of the gate. Yeah. Just take it nice and easy, like you said. <laughs> right. Then after you got the backfire going, you create flank fires, one on each side, right? Yep. And um, they are not necessarily going against the wind, so they're going to burn a little bit faster. Yeah, they're at right angles to the wind. Right. Yeah. Um, and one of the neat things about fire uh, when you're creating a controlled burn is the the places you're burning first actually create fire breaks themselves because yeah. they burn the fuel. Have you ever seen The Gods Must Be Crazy too? Mm, didn't see the second one. There's like a bush fire and um, I can't remember the main guy's name. He's awesome. Um, he saves his like companions by um, setting fire to the grass around them yeah. so that the brush fire has nothing to burn when it gets to them. So he creates a fire break, basically, by burning oh. the area around him before the fire gets there. So he controls it himself. Was that good, the sequel? Sure. Yeah? Yeah. Both yeah. of them are really good. Man, I remember that when it came out. It was like kind of one of the first uh, foreign sort of indie movies that made a big dust up, I feel like. Mm-hmm. You know, that got a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. That's a good must one. must be crazy. Holds up. Does it? Yeah. I'll have to check it out again. Uh, so where were we? We've got our flank fires. We've got yeah. our back fires. We're creating larger fire breaks. Yeah. And then you want to ignite the big daddy, the head fire. Right. Yes. The head fire. It goes in the direction of the wind. It, it's, it's upwind. So it blows very quickly downwind and spreads quick. That's right. But because you said it last, there's less fuel for it to burn. It's going to finish out the fire for you pretty quick. Yeah. But it's not going to go beyond the areas that have already been burned because you just created those fire breaks by burning them on the backfire and the flank fires. Yeah. So after that happens, your fire should be done. And you can Boom. go home. Just forget about it. <laughs> after you set that head fire, just get in your truck and go home. No, there's a little bit more. you got to stay there, my friend, until afterward. And then they call it mop-up duty. When you uh, obviously put out all the flames completely with water, cut down any little trees that are on fire, right, and just extinguish everything and leave it a big, smoldering, nasty mess yeah. that is actually going to be good for the environment. Yeah, and you got to tell everybody who drives by and shouts at you for setting a fire that you're doing this because it's better off in the long run. Yeah, say so the end justifies the means. Pretty neat. Yeah, uh, another tip: don't wear rubber clothing. When you're part of a fire setting crew. Yeah. Because it can melt and stick to your skin. I wonder, this is something I didn't look into. I wonder if the, uh, surely they're, they're, they're just uh, wildfire fighting teams that are doing this, right? It's the same people, right? I would guess. I would guess. I would hope. Because the thing is, it's like, yes, you can, you can be told how to set a fire. I think that's probably the easy part. Like figuring out how to adjust when it starts to get out of control yeah. or doesn't do what you think it's going to do or the weather conditions yeah. change. Or if it jumps that fire break that you think is big enough. Right. That's when I think you need somebody who's like experienced. Yeah, it's so, got to be firefighters. Yeah, there should be the same people doing this who know what they're doing. Yeah, I'm sure it is. And if that's what you do, we want to hear from you. So shout out to us. Yeah, you? I think we heard from some fire jumpers. In the last episode. We did from the wildfire one. And that mm-hmm. was a good one, too. Go back and listen to that, everybody. Do it now. Uh, if you want to learn more about 
controlled burns. You can type those words in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. Since I said search bar, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this Mind Blown. Not my mind. Listener's mind. Hey, guys. I was listening to the Landfills episode, and uh, the most important issue you brought up is the song Powerhouse by the Raymond Scott Quintet. Josh had hummed a snippet, and Chuck said it was Looney Tunes. Uh, that was a moment of cognitive dissonance that rivaled almost anything I've suffered in my 41 years because Josh was actually humming a bit of La Villa or La Via Strangiato by Rush, not some dumb 50s band. I know that song, so this caught my attention. Powerhouse is from the 30s, and it was like an orchestral. That's right. Not a 50s band. This guy's out of his mind. Well, yeah, maybe so. I couldn't believe you were singing a part of one of my favorite songs by one of my favorite bands and crediting someone else. As I watched the Raymond Scott video, though, the universe refocused like when the candle holder resolves into faces or the Canadian flag is irreversibly changed into two angry guys pressing their foreheads together. Uh, case closed. Have you ever seen that? The Canadian flag? No, I've seen one that says, like, Jesus loves you or something like that. I never knew that the Canadian flag, if you look at it a certain way, looks like two guys. Uh, I went and looked, and, uh, you know, sort of. Uh, what about the man on the moon? You ever seen that? Mm, I don't know. Uh, well, then you haven't. Okay. You would know. We'll show it to you. Y- yeah. It's it's kind of like, yeah, I guess I can see that. It's like the arrow in the FedEx logo. Like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Unless you really want to, and then you can. No, oh, okay. I don't see what this guy's talking about. With the Canadian flag? Yeah. Well, you have to type in Canadian flag faces, and then someone will have... It's a bit of a stretch, if you ask me. Have you ever seen any Sister Wendy stuff? No. Um, She is a a nun who um, just understands art and art history like no one else on the planet. Yeah. And she had like a PBS show for a little while, and she she would just point out things... In art that you just never think to look for, like in the negative space, like the illusion? sometimes, but also more like um, like the shadows surrounding a family or something. Oh, okay. It makes them look isolated. And you're like, oh yeah, I didn't really put my finger on that or whatever. Gotcha. She's just got this really great knack for explaining huh. art in really interesting ways. So, and I think it's online for free. Alrighty, sorry about that. No, that's all right. So, uh, where are we? Canadian flag, two angry guys. Thanks for broadening my understanding of one of the first Rush songs I learned to play on drums. Uh, and then I found this on songfacts.com, and it sounds credible. Uh, apparently, this was an issue, and Rush uh, did not give credit to Scott for using Powerhouse. By the time Raymond Scott's publisher notified the band's management of the infringement, the statute of limitations had expired of the challenge. But Rush's management, out of deference to Mr. and Mrs. Scott, uh, and being the class act that they are, offered a one-time penance payment, feeling it was the ethical thing to do. Uh, all involved were happy with the resolution, and Rush has no further financial obligations. Wow. Uh, under this the is quite a story. I know. Under the settlement, they were required, not required, to uh, accord Raymond Scott partial songwriting credit on the piece. So apparently, Powerhouse and Rush's La Villa Strangiata mm-hmm. were similar, and they nicked it from there. Huh. Never knew. I didn't either. Uh, and that is uh, from Ken Rinker in Colorado Springs. Thanks a lot, Ken. And he says best to uh, Jerry in the game. Jerry says thanks. I think. Yeah. 
Uh, Ken, that was awesome. I take back that you're out of your mind. You're interesting instead. How about that? Yes. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Instagram at SYSK Podcast too. You can join us on Facebook.com uh, slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 